I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. It's Tommy Moe! Roby Roby's weekly. Hello and you're very welcome to this week's The 42 Rugby Weekly. Gavin Casey here as always. This podcast is brought to you in association with Guinness, proud sponsors of the Women's Six Nations. Remember to drink responsibly. We've got a massive show today. We're going to chat about the Women's Six Nations, obviously look back on Ireland's victory over Wales and look ahead to the big match against France. We'll do that towards the end of the show. We're going to touch upon some of the European action at the top of the show, Ulster and Leinster emerging victorious there. But we're going to centre the show on recruitment today and try to delve into the mechanics of uh, player transfers and how that entire situation and process works. We've got a very good candidate, I think, to discuss that with us. Uh, he goes by the name of Bernard Jackman. Bert, how are you? Good, thank you. Yeah, looking forward to the chat. I love recruitment and uh, how it works. So hopefully we can, um, yeah, uh, I suppose, educate our, our listeners in terms of um, what actually happens and uh, from a coaching point of view, you know, the factors that you need to look at. Really looking forward to it. Murray Kinsella, delighted to see your face as well. How's your week been? Great, Gav. It's a brilliant season. There's never a quiet day or afternoon, never mind a quiet week. You're kind of lining up your, your Wednesday afternoon and then suddenly Simon Zebo is coming home to Munster and that's all everyone wants to talk about. So, yeah, I'm loving it. There's just a great flow to the season, non-stop news and lines and, and great rugby as well. Yeah, some super rugby played over the weekend. Murray and Owen Toulon did a really thorough review for the 42 members on Monday. Members.the42.e if you want to sign up there, support our independent sports journalism and get so much extra content as well, including Rugby Weekly Extra with the two boys. Just to get your own impressions of those two games, Bernard, will start with Leinster. Um, in the end, a kind of resounding victory over Exeter not only on the scoreboard, but in terms of how strong Leinster were for the last like 60, 70 minutes. I remember Rory O'Loughlin Lachlan talking about the game in advance of it and, and stressing the importance of putting in an 80-minute performance. And you could say, OK, they were uh, maybe a little bit asleep or caught cold for those first uh, 10 or 20 minutes. But ultimately, there was never any sign of panic, which I found most impressive. Even when they were 14-0 down, I never got the impression that Leinster were out of that game. And it was clear that they didn't get that impression either. No, it was an incredible performance, really. And um, they just got more and more dominant as the game went on. And... The reality is Exeter have a very good attack um, and Leinster got found out quite early with 14-0 down and I think they learned from Saracens you know they, they went behind against Saracens in, in the quarterfinal in the Viva and they got rattled uh, and I just thought you know you could see a lesson learned there and, and they didn't panic um, even Sexton going off and after 28-29 minutes could have been a blow Ross Byrne comes on does a, a phenomenal job and yeah, they they look to have the mental strength, the composure, the tactics, the technique, the, the individual players, um, and for me now they're 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 deserving favourites to to win it. And uh, I I think this group need to win Europe. Um, I think you saw them go after that, you know, last weekend, and uh, um, yeah, they're in they're in a great position now. What did you make of Ulster's victory? I think this is great for Ulster to be in a at a Challenge Cup to be playing knockout rugby. Um, you know, obviously away from home against Saints, and yeah, I, I look. I think for them, if they can win this Challenge Cup trophy, even though it's a secondary competition, it would be absolutely huge for them. And and they're they're building nicely. And and I think not no one they're not going to have to play Leinster at some stage to win a trophy. It'd be good for them. Uh, you know, they're in a, a different block, different opponents. 
and they seem to be, you know, reveling in that. And and that's probably something that Leinster have created in the Pro 14 is um, they've been so dominant in it that maybe it's it's actually killing the um, the ambition uh, or the confidence of others. Whereas Ulster now have got a competition where they should win. I think they, you know, they they they're genuinely um, contenders for that. So I think that's going to re-energize them and. If they can win tro- uh, silverware, it'll go a long ways towards helping them potentially eventually be able to top a Leinster in a knockout game. Just to note on that, Gav, around Ulster, it's really interesting also that the Marcel Katia era is over. He's had an early release because he's he's injured and he's going to go back to South Africa. And it would be really, in, in that sense, even more beneficial if they go and win the trophy without him. The guy who's been the talisman, who's been the key dominant figure in the team, they've relied on him so often... And now you're seeing other guys step up. Nick Timoney has been playing really well this season. Obviously, Jordy Murphy was the man of the match last weekend. They've got David McCann bursting through as well. And obviously, Leone Nakarawa is going to come in and, and add some some impact there. But it will be lovely timing for them to go and win a trophy after he's gone. Great service, obviously. An unbelievably effective, world-class player when he got back. And they were really patient with him with those knee injuries. Um, and he delivered some big performances in, in response. But... It's a it's a it's a new time now without him and tipping on, tipping on with a with a trophy would be really good for the province. Yeah, I agree, Murray. But just on that, I know we're going to talk about recruitment. If you've signed Leone Nakawara, which Ulster have, you'd be getting pretty worried at the moment because his form is has dropped off massively. Uh, so it's just something you know. Everyone's excited about the signing and the, the Leone Nakawara that that burst on the scene for for Glasgow that went to Racing that played. In the Olympics, um, isn't the Leone Nakawara that we've seen over the last couple of months for Glasgow? But uh, yeah, it's just it's just worth pointing out. If if they don't get him back on form, it's some drop off from Marcel Kutsia to a, a Leone Nakawara not on form. Hmm. I think we did at the time we had those reservations. We were all excited about it, but we hadn't seen him play. He'd just been back from a year out, and long term injuries obviously could see a bounce back. But totally agree with you on that one. He hasn't been the player he was. Um, so a bit of concern there, and, and that's a really interesting kind of tipping off point, I think, for for our, our chat about recruitment. Yeah, Michael Halpenny had a super chat, or a super question rather, about Ulster. We might swing back around to that uh, in a moment and just start with the two headline moves, if you like, this week, which sort of began to dominate uh, headlines after the three super Irish victories over the weekend. And just get your initial impressions on both signings, Murray. We'll start with, uh, we'll go chronologically, if you like, go with Michael Alatoa and then on to Zebo afterwards yeah well it'd been flagged I suppose that Leinster were out there looking for an NIQ recruit at Tighthead with Michael Bent leaving this summer after years of brilliant service there he's been really important behind Porter and Furlong who are obviously generally away with Ireland um, and he's delivered excellent performances kind of behind the scenes and the, and the matches that not everyone is watching so he will be missed but Al Alatoa is a, an excellent player three-time Super Rugby winner with the Crusaders obviously they've spoken to them about what kind of person he is and Scott Fardy apparently gave a good reference for the family he was Brumbies and Wallabies as, as Alan Alato is so um, yeah they're getting a really good player there and it certainly makes their depth even stronger yeah. potentially opens up the possibility of, of Andrew Porter flipping across to Loosehead which has been discussed by Andy Farrell a few times and I know some people aren't a big fan of, of that idea at all um, and I can understand why the RFU were happy for Leinster to go and sign an NIQ they have provided those two tight heads for Ireland as well as the bulk of the squad really with Ireland and 
I mean, their squad is essentially all homegrown players. So it's tough for other people to point fingers at that at them. And I know people will try and compare deals, etc. But I don't think there really is a comparison. Um, and yeah, he's, he's an excellent player. He's going to make them even, even stronger in short. We've had so many questions on the topic of recruitment, both in the 42 members WhatsApp group and on Twitter as well, when you threw out a tweet last night, Birch. But one from Leinster Rugby Gifts on the ladder. Would the Ala Toa signing have been needed if Leinster had not provided Connacht and Munster with talented young tight heads last season? Yeah, poss- possibly not. Um, but there is still... There's another batch of young tight heads coming through the, the Leinster system. I, I think they needed, to be honest, I don't think, um, you know, uh, Salanoa um, or um, the, the guy who, the guy's gone to Connacht. Uh, Jack Ainger. Jack Ainger. I don't think they would have fitted that profile yet, the Michael Bent profile. I mean, Michael Bent has had a massive role to play. You lose two international tight heads and you have, you know, one more who, had, in terms of scrummaging, is probably a 50-cap tight head. Michael Bent was a, was a 50 cap tight in terms of scrummaging. He's obviously not as dynamic around the field as a, as a furlong or porter, but in a Pro 14 um, and as a backup in a Champions Cup, having someone like him who can win scrum penalties, give you quality ball, I think he's been invaluable. And, and I think they absolutely have complete right to be able to bring in a, an un-Irish qualified tight head of a similar profile, a little bit younger, obviously. Uh, so hopefully it'll get three or four years out of him. And it may allow Porter go back over on the loose head side if Keane Healy um, you know, starts to, to wind down or when he winds down. And, and a Leinster front row of, of Porter, Kelleher, Furlong, you know, um, I think could play for any team in, in, in the world. You know, honestly, uh, that's how exciting that is um, if, if that ever comes to, to pass. So, yeah, and Leinster, they produce so many homegrown players. You know, Fardy, we're not sure, not sure what his contract situation is. James Lowe's become Irish qualified. Gibson Park's become Irish qualified. They they have two more spots if they uh, if they need it potentially. So um, I don't think there can be any argument. I think it's a good signing in terms of helping Leinster and the young Leinster players, like to Dan Sheen, etc. I mean, that's a you know people said, oh, will Jenkins bring on Tom O'Hearn? No, he won't. But could uh, Alatoa help Dan Sheen? Yeah, potentially. Mm. And the interesting one, I suppose people talk about Thomas Clarkson, who signed a senior deal for next season, twenty um, one year old with loads of potential as well. But Leinster's track record suggests that they will get him through in the right way. I mean, Andrew Porter is arguably pushing Tyke Furlong. I know Tyke Furlong is probably the, the next level above, but they got him through with, with Michael Bent there and they made him a, a Lions contender in my eyes. So I would be surprised if Clarkson doesn't maximise his potential as well. Vak Abdeladze is just back from a, a long-term back injury, obviously. And fingers crossed his kind of long-term return is successful as well but Leinster have shown that they can have multiple options in one position and still like even with their back row it's a great example still have guys who are pushing for Ireland spots without necessarily being first choice in Leinster what about this one then from Alex Moo 1990 on Twitter Bernard I know you saw this one last night and you said we might address it on the pod uh, and Alex was asking, why do you feel the reaction from the media to the Jenkins and Alatoa signings differed so much? Jenkins was signed to fill a gap by CJ's sudden departure. Alatoa was signed as an expensive third-choice tight head. Uh, one was met with almost xenophobic reaction. The other seen as good business. Yeah, because of the points that we made. I mean, they lose two tight heads um, to, to Ireland. They, they sometimes lose two loose heads. Um, they always lose a hooker. Um, and... It's 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 a different scenario. You're you're there's a guy leaving as well, Michael Bent, who's a tight head. Um, the guy they're signing is a tight. You know, let's be honest. Munster losing CJ Stander, 
they're not signing number eight. Uh, so that's part of the reason they also have, you know, already a foreign second row in RG Snyman. You know, they've John Klein, who's obviously Irish qualified now, but isn't making the Irish squad. So he's there a lot. Sorry, he's not. Yeah, he's not making the Irish squad or hasn't been. Um, so he's there a lot. They've obviously Tom O'Hearn coming, coming, coming through, who we all want to see progress. So that there's, you know, and there's a couple of other youngsters there as well. So that, it's for me, it's not like for like. And, and that's the thing about non-Irish qualified um, you know, you have to look at the the situation that province is in and, you know, it, it should make sense. And, and look at the most important people to make sense to is Leo Cullen um, and Johan van Graan. Like we can all debate the, the rights and wrongs, but it needs to make sense for where they see their, their roster being a little bit weak. Um, and, you know, we, we're on the record of saying we felt they needed a, a tighter prop or, or a hooker more, but it's up to Johan to to build his depth chart and roster as as he sees. Yeah, certainly is. We'll swing back to Alato in a moment and maybe use that as a means of explaining how these moves come about to begin with because you'll have some insight there, Bernard. And the Zebo one is probably a little bit more obvious to people in terms of how it actually came about. But let's get into Zebo. And uh, there was a question from Cormac McGovern that you got an email, Murray. Uh, I'll just read out some of it uh, as it pertains to Zebo anyway. Uh, firstly, Cormac says, Monster are a PR disaster. Uh, why are they stressing the IRFU aspect of the Zebo deal? Do the IRFU not co-fund uh, every deal by uh, to the extent of 110k? Uh, let's address that to begin with. I don't know how much you want to get into Monster being a PR disaster. It feels like maybe a conversation for another day. But what about the... the um, fact that they are sort of stressing the IRFU's involvement in the deal and in paying a salary yeah really interesting email from Cormac a couple other good questions um in there as well it is an interesting one and I think they were keen to stress that co-funded side of it because there have been player cuts in Munster obviously very recently there have been I suppose those kind of asks of their own players and there's probably a, a question of you know you you make those cuts and then you come and, and you sign two new players and, and I think they're probably keen to stress that the RFU are stumping up um, probably a bit more than usual on this deal which probably indicates that the RFU Ireland Andy Farrell and David New Sephora feel that Zebo can get back into the Ireland mix pretty quickly um, but yeah it, it is a I suppose you've got to manage those messages and, and primary to them as Bernard says is what they're managing internally and, and they feel that that's the right decision f- for that um, it, look, listen it's a as I said, it caught me off guard kind of yesterday, the the sudden nature of it coming through. We'd heard that Simon Zebo wanted to get back to Munster. It makes sense even rugby-wise, family-wise, to come home. Um, and for me, this is a good signing. I think actually, if I was in Munster and I had my pick, Michael Alalato would be in the player, I think they need it. I said that last time, a tight head. I think he would have been the perfect fit for what they need in, the, in their front five. They've ended up with Jenkins and Zebo was available um, and they've, come up with this way of, of paying for it co-funded with the RFU as we say and I think he adds to the squad yes they have lots of options in the back three but Simon Zebo, he only turned 31 last month it's not like he's an old fella he's as recently as last October been probably the standout player on the pitch in the Champions Cup final he was absolutely superb and he hasn't been really consistent I've watched most of the top 14 games and he's had some some poor games I'd say he'd admitted that himself but obviously it's been tricky enough trying to figure out contract couple of injury niggles here and there but he's capable of of really being excellent at the very top level, certainly of the club game still, and he'll feel he can push back into Ireland contention. He's absolutely loved by the Munster fans. I know he's got loads of haters outside the province, but they are excited about this move. You saw all the videos, the reaction yesterday. I think that's an important part of it. He's a good character as well. He 
he's got a liveliness to him he can almost sell the game which i again think is a, is a really good thing so i see loads of positives in this move and if they can get him really motivated get him really fit he's capable of of being really really dynamic and really impactful on the pitch so it's a good one for me yeah we don't usually discuss communications bernard but i suppose um when you look at the departures of jj hanrin and darren sweetenham uh you can understand again why monster would stress the irfu's involvement in this zebo deal but in a general sense that the messaging uh that comes out of monster generally speaking actually isn't great but probably around some of these moves has left a lot to be desired as well i think yeah absolutely i don't see i think that they they probably walked themselves into a corner by blaming finance on sweetman and jj's departure um and look at them I'm, I'm sure there's financial pressures as there is always is for every the DOR head coach when they when they re- retain or recruit um uh, but I would I would also say potentially there was rugby decisions part of that do you know what I mean um you know they have more cover in the back three than they had they've got three young tens Joey's back surely that was part of the reason they they didn't keep JJ as well and I think once you once they went down the road of blaming money for that they felt that they had to justify it how they were able to find the money for Jen- obviously there was a bit of a backlash about Jenkins and now about Zebo, but the reality was I don't think they needed to talk about that. I mean, for me, you know, they've signed Simon Zebo. How it's funded, you know, could have easily stayed stayed quiet. To be honest, um, I mean, there's been lots of strange ways players have been paid uh, across the world in the past that haven't got out to the to the public domain. So I just think that they they maybe said too much, uh, you know, a month ago, and now they're. They're back in that, or they're doubling down on it, which, yeah, I don't, you know, I, I don't see, I don't think it's great, to be honest. I don't think it's great business. I, I think you can have, you can make your decisions without getting to nitty bitty, uh, gritty of it. And I look at how Leinster do the recruitment and retention, and, you know, uh, I don't want to be, come across as biased here, but let's be honest, it's always done in a, in a calm, you know, uh, secretive way. So, did, did, no, traditionally they announced 24, 25 signings on the same day. Um, in one email, obviously this week they're doing it, you know, hour by hour, to, whatever. But I, that's how you announce it's not as important as how that process looks. So all those deals that Leinster have done will all have been done over the last four or five months. You know what I mean? And there will be lots of every individual being treated properly. But we haven't heard any inklings about any player potentially going somewhere else. You know, there was JJ going to Leon, there was JJ going to Biritz or whatever. You know, the, it generally with Leinster. The deals are done without using other clubs um, as as bait. And it, it just seems to help in their performances. There's never any uh, drop-offs, uh, obviously, the, you know, the last two games in the Pro 14. But in general, week in, week out, um, they have a level of consistency, which for me shows the alignment that's going on in the background, if that makes sense. Just just on that, Bert, that's really interesting because we got a question, Gav. I know you got a, the, the members' WhatsApp group. It was from Shane O'Dell and Keane. He says, who in each province has the final say on signings or is there a transfer committee like Liverpool famously had in the Brendan Rodgers days? Because that's an interesting point. Look, I think a guy used to be in Leinster. It seems to be his role. Yeah, well, no, his role would be to, um, his role would be to get the deal done. And so look, I think we need to explain how it looks uh, at the start. So effectively, every, every coach, DOR, uh, province team have what would be a depth chart okay so that'll be basically an excel f- format or google doc whatever with position loose head hooker all the way across your first choice second choice third choice fourth choice fifth choice 
And the, the better your pathway is, the further down you can go. So if Leinster have, which they have, they, they know who the, who the best loose head is in, in, at 15 years of age. He may be 15 or 16 on the depth chart under Keane at the top, right? And that goes all the way down. Okay, so then what a lot of teams do, well, they'll have it color-coded, okay? So um, you, you might have your first choice 15, but you might have international standard, Champions Cup standard, Pro 14 standard development academy in terms of the colouring, right? So, um, uh, so when you look at your overall group, you get a really good um, idea about you know how strong your depth is at loose head in terms of how many international class loose heads have you got. Um, so, for example, Leinster tighthead would have had three international class tightheads uh, with Clarkson as a development player, etc., uh, etc. Et um, so that's that's the first thing you do, and obviously then when you retain and when you recruit. You need to try and strengthen that all the time. So every time you're you're openly talking about your depth chart, it's how can we make it better? How can we make it stronger? Right. So that's one thing. Right. So that's now. That's this season. Then you're looking at, well, actually, what's it looking like next season? So who's off contract? So if uh, just stick with Leicester Front Rose because it's easy. So Keen Healy's under contract next year. So he's in there again. In there. Um, I'm not sure about Ed Byrne, etc. But you'll basically know what it looks like next next season. So 21, 22. And then 22, 23, 23, uh, 24. And you're trying to work out, you know, number five, six, seven, if they're development players or if they're pro 14 players in terms of what your, what your bank are classifying them now is are they going to become Champions Cup players? Are they going to become um, international players? And, you know, realistically, if Keen Healy retires in two years' time, you know, who's right to step up for that? So that's that's the other thing. That's the succession planning. And obviously then that's really important that the academy are feeding the information around, you know, um, Jamie Osborne. You know, we think in, in two years' time, he can be a starter for Leinster, et cetera, et cetera. Then you have to basically look at your spend, right? So then you can color code it in terms of where you spend your money. You know what I mean? So how much of your budget uh, is going into your front five? How much of your budget is going into your halfbacks, et cetera, et cetera? And also... How much budget is committed next season, the season after, because of your contracting? So effectively, that's the challenge. With, and I had this problem in Grenoble. We need to save three million, um, but we had already contracted everybody for the following season. So uh, you can obviously move players on, but that's going to there's going to be a cost in that. So that's that's kind of how it looks. Then you have if you're in France, if you're in France, obviously you have the GIF issue. So what are the GIF regulations? How many GIF have you got contracted for next year? Obviously, in Leinster, it's NIQ, uh, Irish qualified. How many of those do we have? When are they off contract? Scott Farley, when's he off contract? Marcel Coutier, et cetera, et cetera. And then, obviously, are you going to use that spot somewhere else to fill your depth chart, your session plan? Um, and then the other thing is um, is you need to have a real hard look at squad costs, right? So, effectively, you'll have a squad document with wages, um, uh, PA or all the extras on top of that, so PRSI, agent fees, and they'll vary. So one agent might be getting 5%, another agent might be getting 7.5%, 10%, uh, car allowance, um, flights, bonuses, um, uh, bonuses for matches played. Okay, so for example, and I had this in, so we would be going, oh, uh, okay, we budgeted for 5.2 million, um, but yes, it, we've got four players on target to hit their bonuses, which is going to put us over five point or five point two million. Um, also, based on the bonuses in terms of matches played, etc., with bump ups in salary, um, you know, you you may get a, get a, get some players hitting their numbers later on the season 
which is going to increase your salary for next year, which is going to affect next year's budget. So you can't spend that money now, if you understand. So it's a lot of different moving documents. And who has the final say? I suppose Mick Dawson has the final say in Leinster, uh, Ian Flanagan in, in Connacht. I mean, because the CEO has to be able to make sure that the finances um, match. But from a rugby point of view, you know, I would say that it's Leo Stewart, you know, Guy, um, Easterby. In terms of who has the final say, it has to go back to the CEO because that's a financial decision. But, you know, the head coach, maybe all the coaches have to sit down regularly and talk about the depth chart, the succession plan, and how much they need that player going forward. And then obviously they need to find the right financial value to it. Mm, that's fascinating, Gav, isn't it? There's, like, there's so much to it. There's so many things to balance. Like, if I can just ask one more. Sorry, Gav, I'm, I'm taking over. How does it work then? Let's say Leinster, they know Michael Bent's leaving. They know his salary. Where do they go and how does that al deal happen, Birch? Yeah, yeah. so basically um, every agent in the world will have Guy Easterby's number. And this is brilliant because uh, Guy can look after all that. So he can filter what information or what uh, who's, who speaks to Leo and Stuart, right? So that's the beauty of having a guy solely responsible for for recruitment and you know it's not it's becoming more common um i think clubs are realizing this is a, a very important position to have because also not just recruitment retention you know if a player is pissed off with an offer his anger will be towards guy for example rather than leo or stewart and and it because it takes that away so when you go into play training it's about rugby um and, and you're having those conversations around rugby with your coaches and you're having a conversation around your contract through your agent or directly with, with Guy Easterby for, in this example. Um, the the Alatoa one would be Leinster would have flagged they're looking for a non-Irish qualified tight head um, or they're looking for a tight head. So every agent in the world who has a tight head is is ringing Guy Easterby saying, obviously Guy would say, this is the profile we want. So you have to have a player who has the, the quality that Alatoa has. And they might have said, look at international quality tight head. So that would filter a lot of them out. But um, you know they're, they're getting on to Guy Easterby. He'll build up a, a shortlist Okay, and then the coaches will will prioritize. Um, you know who's number one, number two, number three. You don't always get your number one. You know uh, if you're someone like Leinster, you will because you, sorry, you have a better chance because obviously um, it's a successful club, stability, all that stuff. Um, but what I think is interesting about Alatoa is is and this is something that a lot of coaches will do, and I, I would have done in in Grenoble because we had a couple of Brumbies players and we we went back after more Brumbies players because. We had that personal reference. We knew they'd be easier. It'd be easier for them to to acclimatize, etc. So, you know, why am I saying that about Alatoa is because Leinster and the Crusaders spent a lot of time last summer in lockdown. You know, working together um, in terms of how they, you know, how they see each other's strengths, etc. How they're dealing with COVID, uh, evolution in the game, etc., uh, etc. Et so you can be sure that. Um, you know, Robin McBride would have built a decent relationship with the uh, with the Crusaders um, scrum coach. So again, if you're if Alatoa is one of the players who's presented to you, being able to go and speak to his direct coach, I'm not saying this happened, but this is normally what happens, and get you know references for him um, and be able to find out him as a bloke. Obviously, we can all see the footage. Um, that's that's easy. But you know, when you're recruiting a player, you want to speak to. I, I think five players or coaches or physios or um or dors or, or headmasters who've who've actually know the guy and can tell you more about him as a person and particularly for someone like leinster who only have three spots um 
you know, you could spend so much time diving into it, uh, but I think it's so important that you do that. So often, as I said, you see, you see a reason or connection potentially about why that player has picked over others. And it's not just around the rugby side of it, it's around the ability to, to get people to vouch for him. Can I just bring it down to an even more micro level then, Bernard, about like points of contact? Say if you were happy enough having spoken to five people with the prospective signing, you want to go after that player and, and bring him over to your club. Who do you actually get on to initially at the other club when you want to make like a formal move towards signing that player? Or do you go around the club, given there aren't transfer fees involved, speak to the player's agent and do it that way, through the back door, if you like. Um, no, so generally what would happen is you would ask, if you're interested in a player, you would ask the agent, can I meet him? You know, can I... Uh, and so I flew to New Zealand to sign some players that went for four days because uh, I wanted to get out there and meet them, meet their families, etc. And, and you have to do that if you're a smaller club and you're trying to basically convince them to take a punt on you. Um, but yeah, you would generally, in France, for example, we would have always uh, invited the player and maybe the player's partner or the player's father or with the player or whoever the player wanted to bring to the club. So like effectively in, 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 um, in recruitment season, uh, your day off is spent recruiting with players coming. So, you, and you don't, you want to keep it top secret. So you'd be like, okay, you know, you, you arrive at nine o'clock and you have a, you'd have the, basically the standard tour, right? So we're going to go visit the gym and we're going to go visit with the canteen and the video room and the offices. And you make sure they go up to meet the admin people, etc. And then you might go for lunch and then you might, after lunch, you might have, a, you might have another player coming in a half too. And then it's the same thing again and you bring them for dinner. And, uh, but it's like coordination and, and that player might be going to, next week he might be going to another club. You know what I mean? But what you're trying to do is you're trying to create the best possible, uh, it's like a car sales, uh, sales showroom. You know, you want to come in, get to know the club. Um, get to know the coaches without it getting out as well, which is obviously very hard in France when the journalists are pretty much sniffing around the, the club all the time. Um, so, yeah, and then obviously there's some players that you have to go visit them. I mean, uh, actually, I said it to Murray a couple of weeks ago. So because we had no very little money, we were focused on trying to bring as many young GIF players in as possible. So I heard through an agent about that uh, Gabin Villiers, who's, uh, who's playing for Toulon on the wing. He was 16. Um, so I got a train up to... Uh, to north north or north north france to to meet him and his dad uh, at 16 but he didn't want to move luckily for him he's, he's in toulon now um so yeah you can be going to espoir games on a sunday scouting um like it's it's uh it's pretty relentless but yeah so generally agent first then player and the best case scenario is if you can actually go visit them or bring them to you obviously covid that's not happening at the moment but in general players will go visit the club and like also, sometimes it's a case of, can you get a job for the partner? You know, um, is she going to be happy? We had an international school in Grenoble uh, that was free, which, you know, international school in Toulouse, Paris is 20K a year. So us being able to get kids into an international school from a from a foreigner point of view was a massive uh, uh, strength. So you play to your strengths. You, you know, you, you look at what you can bring. We let players ski in the winter because... Because that was one of the things we said was part of our sales pitch, you know, come to Grenoble and ski. Um, I'm sold. You know, you're not allowed to come to, you know, but like, you know, that's the, that, yeah. that's what you do. Whereas you say, guy used to be says, come to Leicester, win Pro 14s. You know what I mean? It's, uh, you play to your strengths. There's different attractions. Quick second part, Shane's question. He says, for, for you, Birch, who's the sign that got away in Grenoble or Dragons that you feel would have made the biggest impact on the team? Um... <laughs> Uh, 
I signed I signed a guy called uh, so we were in we were in a bit of relegation battle. We had two in, tight heads injured. Um and Is this a Grenoble uh, or a Dragon, sorry, Birch? Uh, Grenoble, sorry, Grenoble. And I went to um I went to France. I flew to New Zealand for four days to sign this guy, uh, uh, Carlo Tulema. Okay, he'd have to have a massive impact for um, uh, in the ITM Cup. He was next number eight, converted to tight head, 20, 22 stone. Uh, signed him, uh, spent three days begging him to come, signed him, and uh, he came to France about two weeks later and he failed a medical for his neck. So we couldn't, read, we couldn't play him, which was an absolute hammer blow to us because. We really needed a boost and we'd used that opportunity. We'd missed, we missed, we couldn't sign anybody else. So that was a big one. And then the Dragons, George North, you know, really wanted to get George North. Um, he was coming home to Wales and uh, I think he would have been great for us uh, off, off the field. And then, uh, yeah, so they'd be the two ones. The Tyler prop, he's not a massive name, and but he was going. He would have been key for us at the time because I said we had two injuries. I actually interviewed that tight head when I was in New Zealand once. Um, and funny yeah. enough, I think he... The person who was representing him had his best interest in heart, who I also yeah. spoke to. He they kind of parted ways in the end. It wasn't too amicable, I don't think. No, because the, yeah, it was. He's he's been, he's been playing in Spain at the moment. I, I still WhatsApp him. Uh, he played in Spain about two weeks ago, and he's he was in the um, uh, the American League. Yeah, look at that that setback with his neck um, was a huge blow to him because a lot of clubs go well. What you know, you've got a dodgy neck. But in actual fact, he had no idea he had any problems. He's never had a neck injury, uh, any pain. But the strength, the French rules are, are very strict, and and uh, if there's if it's a closeness or it's a spinal cord, which is great. I mean, you, you want to have safety, but you know he's he's playing away and has played for the last three years. What was the story with Georgie North then, Bernard? How did he get away, and how were things different in Wales to just, even France? Look at, it, at the end of the day, I, I mean, he it was a huge gamble for him to come to the Dragons because he's coming from Northampton. He you know he's a he's a world class player, and you know he went to the Ospreys because there was a lot. It was Alwyn Jones, just just a tip break. I mean, it's a, you know, in fairness, you have if you have the power to pick whatever club you want, you know, you're going to pick the one that is most likely for success. So I completely understand it. Um, but I had to try my level best to to get him to come on board. You know what what we were trying to build, and uh, like, and that's the thing. You'll you'll kiss a lot of frogs. You'll spend a lot of time, you know, chasing players down. You'll spend time talking to players who have no interest in leaving. Um, but it suits them to to have a, a you know an alternative offer. So it's yeah, it's, it's it's particularly if you're if you're with a club who aren't as geared towards success as, as Leinster, Munster, Ulster, etc. So, um, but it's a fascinating. Uh, pro- Look, I, I made it sound unbelievably scientific. Sorry, I didn't make it up. I try to make it sound as scientific as I as I can, and it is. But there's always late changes, and I'll give you an example. Um, so my first two years in Grenoble. I got subcontracted. I looked after the foreign players, and my boss looked after all the all the French players, and uh, I loved it. Like I'd spend so much time on Opta, spend so much time talking to contacts, trying to find uh, the best options. And uh, I was coming home to Ireland for Mike Prendergast's wedding, and uh, which was on a Thursday. Yeah, it was on Thursday, and uh, I was coming home on Wednesday. We, the season was over, right? The season was over, and uh, basically we'd already done all our recruitment, so. I basically went to my boss on the, on the Tuesday. I said, look, are we done? And he goes, yeah, we're done. No more money. Um, and we've all our foreign player spots done. So you're done, right? So I said, okay, I'm going to leave my laptop and go my, back to my Prendergast wedding because um, no, there's no chance that's going to happen because we've no money and we've no spots, right? And I was only looking after foreigners. So um, that was grand. So I went home on, on the Wednesday, obviously flew home. 
I, I got back to Dublin Airport, message from for my boss, Fabrice Landreau. He was like, ring me, ring me, right? So I rang him and he goes, we need a second row. And I said, what do you mean we need a second row? He goes, oh, I spoke to the president. We've got another sponsor. We can have a second row. And I said, but I thought we've no spots left. He goes, no, no, get a young foreigner who can go into the academy and effectively they won't be GIF, but they won't be a foreigner. There's a little loophole. So they have one year basically where they can, so it had to be 20, 21. That'd be 20. So I was like, okay, I'll, uh, I said, have you spoke to any agents? He said, yeah, I spoke to um, some agents. We've got two two live candidates. But the problem is we have to sign them by six o'clock Friday because after that, it's a day. Okay. So I was like, oh, okay. okay. So um, I had no laptop or anything, right? So I said, who are the two guys? Who are the two guys you have? And he goes, um, oh, a guy called Lavanini uh, who plays for Argentina and a guy, Paul Willemse, who plays for the Bulls, right? So I knew Willemsen, I knew Lavanini, like they're, the fairness, they, they were young, but they were already uh, playing professional rugby. And one was playing international rugby. So I was like, okay, look, at, um, let me see what I can do. So Ireland had played Argentina the previous week. It was Ireland were on a two-match tour. And uh, so anyway, I rang O'Connell, Paul O'Connell, and I said, look, at, he played against this guy, Lavanini, on Saturday. Um, and he was about to play him the following Saturday. I said, oh, what's he like? He said, oh, he's an absolute animal. Like he just, he was going around place melting people, right? So I was like, okay, well, that's good. Um, great, thanks. And then I rang a friend of mine who was, who was um, involved in the Bulls Academy and he said, tell me about Willemsen. He said, look, this guy, he's an absolute monster. Um, and uh, he said, he's probably not made for Super Rugby, but in France or, or Northern Hemisphere, he'd be unbelievable. Like he's 132 kilos. He's mean, he's powerful. He's going to get better. So I was, I, I was like delighted. Like this is unbelievable to get like, well, obviously I knew, I knew they were both good, but to get two really positive mentions, uh, references. So I rang my boss back and I was like, look at, yeah, both are unbelievable. Right. Um, uh, I'll take any of them. Just get, get one of them. And, and he goes, okay. So I was, I was, I, he said, leave with me. I'll, I'll let you know. So I was in the, I was in the church from sorry about this mic, but I, I was in the mass and I like I was checking my phone every few minutes, going, "Have we got one? Have we got one?" This was on the on the on the Thursday, and uh, I was texting him saying any news, like no reply. Um, so anyway, I rang him. I got him after the mass. It's like, what's happening? He goes, "Oh, I don't know who to guess. They're both brilliant." And I was like, "Just get like I said, what well, like what price are they, right?" And uh, basically, one was one was double the cost of the other one. <laughs> okay, and, like we we've had no money for like years, so I was like, "Okay, get." get the cheaper one. Okay. And, uh, he was like, okay, okay. So it turned out the cheaper one had actually signed for Rassing. Anyway, the agent was full of shit and, um, he was already gone to Rassing. So we didn't even have two options. We had one option. So we got a deal done for, for Paul pretty much Friday afternoon and got like the paperwork. It's kind of like, you know, um, in, you see in England with, uh, you know, deadline fever, like literally we went to, to about an hour before the deadline and we got the, Facts back from from uh, Pretoria, and we got Paul Willemse. So yeah, that was and like in fairness, look, it worked out really well. So you can, it worked out really well. We ended up selling him to Montpellier. He's obviously a brilliant player, and he was great for us. But yeah, and like I would say, the Simon Zebo one. If you had have asked Munster in January, is Simon Zebo your priority? He probably wasn't. But circumstances have led to to being able to do a deal. And you know, I, I you know, as I said. You have your succession plan, your depth chart, etc. But if a really good player becomes available and he can add to your squad, well, then you got to be able to act on your feet. And if it takes co-funding from another few to get it done, like I'm not anti that at all. I know a lot of people are anti it, um, but I just think this is an example of creativity, um, being flexible, helping Munster in this situation be better. So I'm for it. I, I, you know, I just don't. I, my point was, I don't think it needs to be out there such, you know, obviously there has to be transparency with Connacht, Leinster and Ulster, but I don't think it needs to be in the public domain, but that's, um, 
that, you know, that's 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 the yeah. other side of it. Can I just pick up on something you said earlier on about um, obviously over in France, it's like I love reading Media Olympic because there's two pages of transfer rumors, and I often think the presidents are involved yeah. in that. We got a couple of questions just to run through them quickly. Kieran O'Dowd in the members WhatsApp says um, it seems really common that player transfers are announced mid-season. Does this ever have an effect on the atmosphere in a dressing room or lead to mistrust, feeling that player is not giving his all? And then there was another one from Hugo McLean on Twitter to to your to your uh, posts. Birch, he says, how much do agents clubs use the media to gain extra leverage in negotiations? For example, Zebo to London Irish story was that just a technique to add a few zeros to the pay pack or just media speculation? How does that side of it work when you're in when you're when you're on the inside, Birch? Yeah, so just. Um... And I wouldn't blame agents, coaches and, and presidents do it as well to to deflect negativity, to build a bit of hype with the season ticket holders. So um there's lots of people who um who play that play that role and, and, and play that play the media, play the coaches, play pay the players off a little bit uh, against each other sometimes to try and get the best possible deal or find a club for their player. Just on France, I was very lucky. My president was basically like a CEO in Ireland. So he was paid. He wasn't putting money in. So he was much more, um, he communicated much more with us. It was, it was, it was much more systematic, but like when I did my pro license in, in uh, coaching license in France, I got to spend 12 weeks with a lot of other French coaches and they would tell me stories of, um, the president going for lunch with an agent and having a bottle of wine and, and having a nice meal and coming home from that uh, meeting, telling them I've signed your player, you know what I mean? And Oh, who is he? Like, uh, so no alignment and, and the agent, and that's the thing in France, certain agents are, are very close to certain presidents. So if you're with an agent who isn't in with Stade Francais, you've no chance, you've very little chance of getting in there and it's your top end player. So you nearly need to have an agent for the club you want, if you know what I mean, in France. Um, how do how do uh how does the media play a role in this um like i would say genuinely london irish were interested in simon zebo uh, I, I would believe that because he's a very good player he would have fitted their uh profile in terms of trying to you know add more irish players so i don't think that's that's false at all um but yeah there's been absolute like i i i know grenoble were linked to players in my time dragons were linked to players at the time we had never heard of or or, or never interested in but if the agent is trying to to create a bit of interest, you know, sometimes he's trying to build a confidence to the player by saying, look, at, you know, you're at, there's clubs looking at you um, to try and get them in form. I mean, everyone has their own their own reason for doing things. Um, and yeah, so the media do play a big role in this. Um, and, you know, Murray, you get fed stuff from agents. Uh, our, sorry, journalists get fed stuff from agents. And it's up to the journalists to decide, is it legit or not? And likewise, as I said, presidents in France will feed stuff to... The agents, coaches will, and it's part of the whole French. It's part of why rugby is so popular in France is because um, I know you were talking about Ireland being really interesting over the last couple of weeks, etc. But in France, it's it's like that all the time. I mean, your recruitment because you recruit so many players year on year because it's not like in Ireland where the Irish players don't generally. I know there's been lots of guys who play for two or three provinces, but in general, fellas stay in the same province. Whereas in France, if you retire, if you retire and you haven't played for four or five clubs. You know, they wonder there's something wrong with you. You know what I mean? So there's and so and then you have your foreigners as well. So <clears throat> there's much more recruitment in France and obviously much more clubs. But it's um yeah, it's 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 really it's really fascinating. Yeah, Gav, I'm always in, I'm always jealous almost as a journalist because in France it seems a lot more openness and willingness to talk about stuff that maybe is not a a done deal. And like that's fun. It's the best part of football as well. People love transfer rumors and, and things like that. Um 
So yeah, I think rugby, they can start feeding journalists even more. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you if that, Murray, I had Hugo's question queued up as well, kind of for both of you, because you experienced this on the other side of it too, Bernard, when he's a coach, in that you are, I don't want to say fed rumours, but people make suggestions and contact journalists fairly regularly, be it somebody close to the player or uh, or their agents, or in some cases the players themselves. So like, how do you filter out uh, the bullshit from the real prospects of moves? Yeah, I suppose the thing is having a, a breadth of of sources on a on a story that it's not just that one person who has a clearly invested interest in things. Um, it, and it's different every single time because there's so many different people involved in all in all these things. Yeah, there's a judgment call there at the end of the day, but you you, you want to be certain with these things. Sometimes you get it wrong. Sometimes you don't go with it, and they're the ones that really piss you off because you, you feel you should have had the story. Um, but it, 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 you know, it's it's a fun part of it. I, I really do enjoy that side of it and speaking to people and, and seeing what's going on behind the scenes. And I know supporters absolutely love it as well. So more of it, I say. This question from Amy in the members WhatsApp group, Bernard, uh, was roundly praised. A lot of people wanted to hear it answered. Excuse me. So Amy was saying, what happens when a player has a long-term injury? Are they still paid the full wage per their contract? What is expected from the player? Uh, example, in terms of attendance for physio, etc. And what if a player is injured and their com- contract is coming up for renewal? Does the IRFU or the province typically take a short or long-term view? Um, players get paid during their, their long-term injury. Um, they'll get 100% of, of their contract. There is a clause, I think, if you're out for... I'm not sure what it is in the IRFU now, but... If you're out for nine months consecutively, potentially can be terminated after the, those nine months. Um, in France, it was different. If you're out in France, there was a um, a different clause. But in France, as soon as a player got injured, he, his salary got paid by insurance. So it wasn't um, as, as difficult for, for the club. So players get paid 100% on their long-term injury. Obviously, they don't get any match fees or, or win bonuses. Um or or performance related bonuses that they could have got through playing but they will get their their full salary um if a player is off contract and he's long term injured in Ireland generally you know if you're going to keep that player you'll 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 keep him you know provided he's going to get back but obviously if you're going to get let that player go um you'll he'll come off contract in June and as far as i remember in Ireland they will look after the rehab until they get back fit to play, but they won't continue to play their salary, um, if that makes sense. So effectively, that's the that's the challenge. If you if you're if you're, going to war, if you're fighting and haggling over an extra five k, um, uh, you know, uh, and it's taken a while, that's what always should be. It will be in the player's mind or the agent's mind of the risk of an injury, a long term injury, which could could basically change the the landscape. So that's 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 the that's. The benefit of getting things die down pretty quickly is that you have the security of your of your contract. Finno Boyle was wondering how will contracts change in future and how they're negotiated. He was saying, like, have you noticed it changing over time to begin with? Then how do you see it um, changing in future? Also, what do the players look for? Like, is it uh, length of contract versus signing on fee, that kind of thing? Yeah, there's a very little signing on fee. Um, you know, there has there is there is the odd signing on fee, but. It's it's very rare. Um, you may give people an, a, a relocation allowance, um, which they have to um, vouch for with expenses, etc., um, to help them. Obviously, I said if you're bringing someone from New Zealand, you 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 probably pay their flights. You might pay for their their moving. You know, um, 
and and you may get them set up in an apartment or or, or whatever. But in in general, no, there's no signing on. There's, sorry, very little signing on fees. Transfer fees happen way more than you would think, um, and very rarely get to, and particularly in France, um, and uh, yeah, so transfer fees do happen, um, but it's it's really where there's a need, you know, and uh, it's for someone who's who's very good, and also it's also in France there's often compensationary packages to players who are on a long-term contract who aren't performing um and you know so you'll all you have the guys sorry so it's a it's a tough one right so if you're if you're on the market as a player so i'm i'm off contract in june and i want to and I, and I have no offer from my current club and i'm on the market i'm competing with the other guys who are off the market who are in my position who are my level of 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 quality but then i'm also competing with the odd guy um, who's my level of quality, who's on a contract, but a club are trying to move him on. And the problem there is, say I want 100 grand a year to play, right? Um, and this guy's on 100 grand in his in his current club. The current club may pay him 50,000 to get him off the books to save 50,000. So effectively, the new club are looking at me who costs 100K and a guy same level as me who only going to cost him 50K. Do you know what I mean? So maybe people don't understand that as well, or players might understand that, that it's not always um, my value as a player, my value in what I, and what my market value is. Sometimes there's other criteria, which makes someone else more, um, more attractive to me. And maybe that's even apart from getting subsidized by your old club. Um, maybe that's the fact that a club can get more money for another player because he, he's EQP or GIF. Do you know what I mean? So it's, it's, it's not, I'm, I can do X, Y, Z, and I cost this. Um, you know, the, the director of rugby is going to have to weigh up, you know, what's an offer in terms of, you know, uh, a subsidized player or a, either through a, he's on an existing contract and the club want to offload him or because I'm going to get credits back through EQP and through GIF, if that makes sense. Can I just ask, um, you've mentioned agents a couple of times, Bert. What yeah. is the relationship like between coaches and agents? Uh, look at the. If I think, look at there's there's often rows, right? And especially, especially if you feel you've been um, played, uh, and you know. But the reality for an agent who who wants to be in this long term, um, I think the sharks the sharks get found out pretty quickly, and they don't have any sustainable uh, period. So I think when the game went pro first, there was lots of dodgy agents in terms of spoofers and, and and bullshitters i think now it's settled down i think you know if you're still an agent now um you've got credibility and you understand your job is to create you know long-term relationships with with the coaches with the decision makers and clubs plus the players so um you know skullduggery and and bad practice look we all understand a player might genuinely be interested and at the last minute decide to stay or to go somewhere else that that's part of it it's when when you feel that you know there was never a chance and you've put a lot of time into it um, is probably when the coach can get frustrated. But um, yeah, there's good, like there's coaches and players need, and sorry, agents and coaches have good relations because as a coach, you know, the agent has a huge influence over the player. So, um, you know, his, his recommendation, um, you would imagine if the player trusts that agent to, to look after his career, um, he's going to have a, a huge influence in terms of saying, look at, I think that's a that's a great move for you. I think at this stage of your career, you know, getting to play every week or, or whatever it is, um, 
will will be will be beneficial to you. So I think it's in it's in the agent's interest to have the coaches on side, but also it's in the coach's interest to to have the agent, you know, very comfortable with recommending a player to go there. Presuming that finance is the top of an agent's list when they're beginning contact with you or vice versa, what's the second thing that they would focus on as it pertains to their player? Uh, look at any look. I think if they have to look at, um, can they play? You know, will they start regularly? Because that's what every player wants to do. So a player who's not starting regularly is going to be back onto the agent in, in three or four months. Gone. I'm not happy. Why'd you send me here? You know what I mean. So there has to be a genuine need for that player's profile in that club. Um, and it depends on what the player wants. Does, is the player want to, you know, to uh, to ski? Does the player want to live in the uh, near the in Biritz? Does he want to? Does he want to surf? Does the player want to live in Paris? Does the player want to live in London? So. You know that's important. So there's no point sending the player to to Newport if they want to live in Paris, like because uh, it's going to end up being happy anyway. But so that so what the player wants um, is is obviously important for the for the uh, for the agent. And then again, the player will say so. Obviously, if if Simon Zebo signed a one year contract, he wasn't paranoid about security. You know that's great. That makes it a lot easier to do the deal. Whereas if Simon Zebo said I'm not going anywhere unless I get a three year contract, well then that agent's priority is going to be getting a two year at least with maybe an option for a third year or a three year. So I think agents, agents needs are very reflective on what that individual player needs. You know, do they need a, a three year contract for a mortgage? Um, are they, are they looking to get the kid into school that they want stability? You know, um, I think that's, are they just looking to get game time? So it's all relevant to each individual player. What about that one year deal then? I just, as you brought it up, I thought of a question we got on Twitter from Owen Ryan and Owen was asking, is signing only for one year a bit strange? Uh, he was also asking, do we anticipate Munster will make any more signings? But just to begin with that one year deal, Murray, is it strange or is it just a case of play it by year? It's kind of almost become standard almost this year, given COVID and I suppose restraints on, on budgets. Um, and there's probably a bit of risk there for, for Simon Zebo, but yeah, I think he's, He's backing himself and and I wouldn't be surprised to see him nail it and, and, and extend on. Um, several players, even guys like Jack Cardi and Connacht signing one-year deals, um, it seems to be far more common in, in the current climate. I think we got a question on that as well. It has changed in that regard. Obviously, contracts have gone down in terms of the value and and also the length of them has, has decreased as well. So that's kind of common across the board, really. I, I love the fact Zebo took a one-year. I think it's brilliant. You know, he's coming back. He's, he's going to perform. And um, you know, and uh, it's less risk for Munster, and the risk is on the player's point of view. So I, I really admire that. I think it's, I think it's great. We didn't give producer Brano, the Bose diehard, what he wanted here. An hour of Simon Zebo chat he asked for from us, but that kind of actually, I think, it indicates the the sheer level of interest in in Zebo coming home as well. Yeah, it certainly does. It certainly does. Bernard, you were talking about obviously um, recruitment of foreign players while you're in Grenoble obviously when you were Dragons there was more of a yeah. focus on Welsh qualified players and I'm wondering how different the recruitment process is with something like that how much more you have to have eyes and feet on the ground in terms of scouting and so on and uh, we had a question as well about talent ID that we might get into if we have time uh, in terms of how it works in Ireland but even in Wales where you were focusing on those indigenous players how did it work? Yeah so basically um, just the background is I and mean, this is very specific to that challenge. Uh, so WRU bought the Dragons. Um, so we were the only region that was under the ownership of the WRU. And it made sense to go down the Welsh qualified route to me um, and, and to the board and, and to everyone involved. So we had, I think, 
maybe 10 non-qualified, non-Welsh qualified when I got there. When I left, we had one. Um, and that was that was part of our strategy to, to make it very Welsh um, and to try and bring as many Welsh players through. So we didn't really have a strong academy because funding had been cut from that uh, for two years. So basically we had to go and look at... We, 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 we didn't have the... Um, we we're going to find it hard to attract Welsh players from other teams, uh, other regions, because why would you leave the Blues, the Scarlets, or the Ospreys to to come to the Dragons if you're starting? Uh, um, so we went after the Welsh qualified players who were, you know, across the bridge. Um, and luckily there was a few in Bristol, um, uh, and uh, so Roger Williams, Jordan Williams, um, you know, there was a guy called Nicky Thomas, there was Ross Moriarty. Um, uh yeah there was there was a couple of uh, a couple of guys there was a guy called Hugh Taylor and Worcester so we went to look at we tried to bring back um uh, uh Williams um plays in Gloucester sorry my head's gone um uh, Owen Williams Williams yeah. to bring back Owen Williams you know so we basically went after every single Welsh qualified player that was that was out of North George North was coming back um so that was our model and look at we we got we got some guys back and 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 um you know, Ross Moriarty wouldn't have been able to go to the Rugby World Cup if he hadn't come back to Wales because he 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 didn't have sixty caps. So um, you know, so there was there was a strategy there for the Dragons, a strategy there aligned to what made sense from a, a Welsh rugby union point of view. So yeah, that's very different than your. So I would have also been targeting young Welsh kids. So I would have spoken with the uh, the guy in Wales who was responsible for exiles, and he would have had a depth chart of like four hundred kids between you know as, as young as 13 or 14 who had welsh parentage uh, are welsh qualified and you're trying to work out um trying to work out which ones of those fit into your succession plan and can you get them back and, and we also had a lot of kids from our region who had got scholarships to go to private schools in england um some tongan kids uh who, whose parents had come to like the falatows whose parents had come to wales to play rugby semi-pro back 18 19 years ago lived in Wales, uh, were very good rugby players at 12, 13, like the Vunapolas, big private English boarding schools came in, gave them scholarships, but then they were in the English system. So they were like getting tapped up by, you know, Newcastle Academy or whatever, whatever school, uh, whatever professional club that school fitted into. So trying to work with those. Um, and like that, like that, you know, that was your day off gone driving to, to Sussex or, or wherever to, to meet a kid who's in boarding school at 15, 16. But, that that was the project, um, and yeah, so we had some success and we had some failures, but uh, so it was very that was very Welsh qualified, um, but that was a complete rebuild. So, you know, if you went into the Dragons now, it's 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 they they would have a much better succession plan roster idea about where they're going. If you get me, because um, it's unusual to go into a place a club that kind of didn't really have any. It was nearly gone bankrupt. So um, I think that was a very special kind of uh, project. Michael had the question about uh, just gaining an understanding as to how young talent is spotted here, how it's developed and how it differs by province. Um, and if the recent IRFU cuts are going to impact this, that might be nearly a chat for another day because it feels like there's a lot in there. But could you give a brief enough synopsis, Bernard, as to how, say, a Leinster or a Munster would go about actually identifying talent and recruiting them to academies and so on? Yeah, well, look, they have um, each province has got a guy whose job is to look at the depth chart from 18s down. So I know Trevor Hogan does it. Um, Trevor Hogan does it in, in Leinster. So he will, uh, he'll be watching schools game, youths games. He'll be, you know, 
talking to development officers in the southeast, uh, the northwest of Leinster, finding out. And they have those kids in as well. I mean, so they, those kids might train with their club on a on a Tuesday, Thursday night, but it'll also go into a, a, um, a you know a southeast development squad on a, maybe a Monday night, Wednesday night. So they're in the system, and then it's a case of trying to grade them. And obviously, last summer they couldn't get them all together for summer camp, so it's more difficult. But when you get three hookers together at 16 years of age, well then, and you spend two weeks with them and they can play matches, well then you can actually rank them. And obviously, you're, you know, they'll be getting work-ons, etc. And, and a guy who's ranked number one at 16, you know, there's no guarantee he's going to be ranked number one at 17 because growth spurts and whatever. But that's the plan is to have a, um, a funnel that has as much quality uh, and as depth to it here. But as you get to that Leinster Academy, it's just squeezing, squeezing, squeezing talent all the way through until you get a Ryan Baird, a Ron Kelleher, a, a Jamie Osborne, uh, a Craig Casey, you know, a, a Balatloon, whatever, um, who's just that step above, who's got the quality to be in your depth chart as an international quality player. That's the dream is to, and you, you know, you heard Stuart Lancaster say when he talks to the academy in Leinster, he says, you know, send me players who can help Leinster win a Champions Cup. You know, get me those ones. Don't get me the, the guys who can, you know, um, cover first like when we're, we've got injury depth we'll get them all they're always going to be there get me those guys and prioritize them the you know the 20 percent of the of the players are going to win you 80 percent of the games michael halpenny had a question to wrap on this murray uh to bring it back to ulster and he sent this to yourself via email I noticed something uh, odd about the Ulster pack selected to face Northampton last weekend in the Challenge Cup quarterfinal. Not a single member of it went to school in Ulster. Ian Henderson is uh, would usually start. It seems like he's almost the exception that proves the rule. I can't imagine that a province has, has produced so many legendary forwards uh, has suddenly grown incapable of it. Interestingly, by contrast, Ulster are producing some of the most some of the most scintillating backs at the moment, and are possibly a net exporter when you think of Farrell in Munster and Jackson and Olding abroad. Uh, this is a topic that has been discussed a lot in respect of Munster recently, with Donald Lenehan in particular asserting that the failure to invest in the club system in Munster is hampering them. I'm wondering if it's a similar situation in Ulster, or are there other reasons? Do a load of forwards come into the Ulster academy and just not make the grade? And if so, is that because the best options aren't identified? Or is there an issue with the development of forwards within the academy? Is it uh, is it any kind of priority for somebody to fix? And Michael went on to kindly include uh, the starting pack for Ulster who faced Northampton last weekend. And yeah, there were, there were no Ulster players. There were four players from Belfast on the bench. Uh, well, Tom O'Toole is, might be uh, a Drogheda man, but... Uh, Crack of a question. Yeah, I wasn't surprised at the thoroughness of, of Michael's email. He's one of the very educated rugby fans who are part of our membership. Um, so thanks for the email. And, and it's a really pertinent question. We spoke earlier on this season, I think, about identity in relation to Ulster and Dan McFarland saying it's not about where you're from, it's where you are and how you bond together. Um, but you certainly want a homegrown element. And the fact that Ian Henderson is the captain, you want someone else coming through and, and following hot on his heels. I've spoken to Kieran Campbell about this a couple of years ago now at this stage and, and they had identified it as a as a problem as an issue certainly players were going through their academy but probably not with a conversion rate that was satisfactory lots of the guys would go on and play championship or some in the states even and and little bits like that they just never quite pushed on into the Ulster senior squad one of the reasons they felt was maybe that there wasn't a I suppose diverse enough stream coming through and they'd focus on branching it out a little bit and even if you look at the Ulster A team who had a really impressive win 
over Leinster a couple of months back. Conor McMenamin from Donegal in the second row. Brilliant to see a player like that in, in an Ulster jersey. Um, and absolutely, the, the academy is churning out backs. And, and it is a curiosity, I suppose, that the, the forwards haven't been able to to make that next step. Uh, we mentioned David McCann earlier on, and I think he's the, the big hope at the moment, a guy who has leadership credentials, who has taken his opportunity so far and has a, has a really rounded game. Um, so they'll be very hopeful of that. But absolutely, it's something they've been trying to address. And without a, a concrete answer, it's never quite simple, but there's an awareness there, same as in Munster with the, the Limerick thing and, and not having players from there in, in their academy. Sometimes it's very hard to put your finger on the exact reason, but um, yeah, it's a, it's a pertinent question. I think there is, like we criticise Munster for, I suppose, non-homegrown players and, and that influence in the squad. And I think that's relevant to Ulster as well. And I know Dan McFarland will defend it and they have a great squad culture and all that, but it's really crucial to have a, a nice core of, of homegrown guys across the team, not just in your back line. Henderson and, and Co up front are, are really important in that regard. You could maybe make, make the case, Bernard, that the inverse is true in Leinster. It's not, not to the same degree at all. They do produce a, a few backs through their academy, clearly, and there are a couple of them even at other provinces. But just, I suppose, the volume of forwards they produce versus backs that make the grade, say, at first team level and become fixtures in their team. It does seem to be um, the case that there are a lot more forwards there now, whereas in Ulster, it's the other way around. It, have you a, a means of explaining it or, or why that might be the case where one area of the pitch just tends to produce more than the other? No, I, I think it's probably um, down to the, the level of, of competition that's down here in the population and, and um, the, you know, they're starting to get some guys from like across across all, not just the big four schools, you know, you're getting guys from the uh, the less prominent uh, private schools plus some 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 guys from outside that, that network. I, I don't think there's I think in Ulster, probably the lack of competition or depth to their to their main comp- main schools or production line is, um, is is hurting them, and it's just coincidentally there's been more backs than than forwards, um, and uh, I don't think there's anything around how they're coached up there and that it's just literally a numbers game, and and Leinster have have the the advantage there. And also, like while we can criticise it, it is also good that a host of Leinster produce players or players who, who originate from Leinster go and excel with other provinces as well someone like Alan O'Connor in Ulster who's an absolute stalwart up there has been brilliant all season again this year missed out in Leinster but he has an avenue to keep playing professional rugby in, in Ireland rather than going abroad or maybe just giving up the game and same elsewhere Connacht of, of Leinster players Munster of someone like Ty Byrne who came through Leinster's system and, and it didn't quite work out for him but now he's made a massive success of it that's an important part of it as well but Absolutely, Ulster will be looking at addressing that question themselves. Really enjoyed that chat on recruitment. Let's wrap on the women ahead of their big game this weekend. And to ask yourself, Bernard, to begin with, because as we were saying earlier, Murray and Owen did chat about the Wales win on Monday. How impressed were you by it? We, we'd been chatting in advance of it, actually, the three of us, and talking about uh, some potential issues in the Welsh camp and how Warren Abrams might might be um, struggling to get like every player on side. It's sort of did strike as that type of a performance by Wales, but I'm not sure how much of that came down to the fact that Ireland started so electrically quick and really put the game to bed so early to the point that it, it didn't feel like a competition for the last 60 or so minutes. Yeah, I, I, look, at uh, there's definitely issues behind the scenes in Wales, but um, I think that 
you know, they would have saw the Ireland game as a chance to, um, you know, to right some wrongs and, and, a, and a backlash. But the way Ireland started, um, it was phenomenally impressive, to be honest. I mean, for a team who hadn't played a game um, and hadn't played domestic rugby, you know, they deserve massive credit for how they've they've prepared and how they seem to have built on what we saw last year's green shoots. You could see there was things starting to happen. Um but I thought we'd be kind of maybe back to that again, still trying to find a way of playing, still trying to, um, you know, build a, a game plan. I thought defensively very well organised, um, and you know, attacking uh, shape was 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 really good as well, and and the skill set was excellent. I mean, to <clears throat> to build the phases um, that they did for the for the for the first couple of tries, you know, their rook uh, technique, their ball presentation, um, their their movement to the ball, their their balance between. You know, forwards and backs carrying. I thought was was excellent. I mean, they really deserve a load of credit because they had every excuse under the book, and and they didn't um, they didn't allow that affect them. So uh, it's another step up, obviously, at the weekend. But they you know they they seem to be in a really good place, and I think they're they're looking to to catch on to France and England, and and not talking about them being pro and, and Ireland being amateur, just getting on with building a really good team. The cohesion was unbelievable, Murray. I thought, like, within like within thirty seconds, you saw Ireland uh, building phases and just the the coherence with which they were doing it and the fluidity to their attack blew me away. Because, as Bernard says, like six months without a test match is unbelievable. And to be honest, I know they were talking in advance about twenty training camps and we're we're like a well oiled machine and all that. I for me anytime i hear anybody say that even in other sports boxers talking about training camps for example i'm like i'll believe it when i see it because training camps don't really tell you like they can give you an idea as to where you're going but when you get out there on the pitch it can go drastically wrong as well so that's what impressed me most was like not only did they actually back up their own talk but they exceeded certainly my expectations if not their own absolutely and it was different i suppose in that obviously it's over a longer period of time here but generally the amateur women's team don't have as much time together on the pitch to, to nail things down there's an absolutely massive understanding of exactly where they've been trying to go as Bernard mentions there and they do look really well coached in, in credit to Adam Griggs and, and his team around him everything they did was sensible incisive and some of it was as simple as getting the ball to Baven Parsons which they did repeatedly you know right hand side scrum don't mess around just get the ball in their hands and you saw what happened they did that several times during the game some of the starter plays were simple but direct and, and allowed them to play on, on front foot possession. Defensively so cohesive and everyone understanding their roles that if someone was going to commit to Jackal, everyone else had to be on their feet. There was no over committing. Um, every part of it really was, was thorough. The line out I thought was exceptional. And again, simple in the defence. They marked the front and middle. They said, you can have the back if you want, Wales. Uh, and they didn't want to go there and, and they picked it off repeatedly. Scrum obviously was a major strength as well and they just went after it really relentlessly. So well coached, well organised, fit. Everyone looks physically in good nick and an absolutely invigorating victory. And you've got a couple of stars like Baven Parsons and Dorothy Wall, 19 and 20. And you need those as well. It's a team sport obviously, but they're kind of symbols, I suppose, of the of the revived nature of this squad so i'm fascinated to see how it goes against france who had a very similar victory over wales in the first weekend of the championship they started off um they were on fire and and scored uh, three tries it was the winger caroline uh, bougeard who scored three tries inside the first 15 minutes they had two mole tries two of their five meter scrums were converted into tries and they also had one on 
on kind of kick return in the in the second half the, the fullback uh, Boulard finish it off so they've got a, a variety of strengths they've got some real power and size in their in their pack in particular that Ireland are going to be really wary of but it was it was funny how similar the two victories were and I'm fascinated to see now where that meets in the middle with Wales removed from the equation but um, it is exciting it is exciting to see uh, such a thorough comprehensive record win albeit with the the issues that Wales are clearly having at the moment can I stick with yourself on this one and ask you about say Bavin Parsons and about Dorothy Wall given they're so young given how well they played at the weekend and given how good we know they are like they feel like two figures of the women's sport that could be used or harnessed to really grow the game here I was we were chatting to Bavin Parsons during the week about um she was doing an Avonmore sponsorship thing sorry I can't think of the campaign name but it's in it's in the piece Avonmore all right and I was blown away by how impressive she was like as a as such a without meaning to condescend but as, as somebody who is so young um for her to speak so forthrightly so confidently uh, so eloquently even when I was suggesting to her that there have been fears over the last few years that the Six Nations is almost becoming a two-tier competition with France being semi-pro with England being pro and she almost like the, she gave me daggers down the zoom lens you know like it was she's kind of scoffed at that notion and I just she struck me as somebody who around whom you could actually build a sport she struck me as somebody uh whose whose face could be a poster on kids bedroom walls boys and girls like she she seems like a a bona fide star in make in the making and I guess somebody who has the potential to cross over as well and become a, a sort of a mainstream sporting figure, which is more difficult for women in sport in Ireland. The same can be said for Wall, I think. She was absolutely sensational over the weekend on both sides of the ball and they're going to be there for years. So I'm what, what I'm asking you is, like, shouldn't the IRFU actually look to capitalise on people like this and, and really build the women's, the women's 15s game here? Yeah, absolutely. I mean... Parsons comes across as such a mature, kind of self-assured, interested person. Um, obviously, that'll wear down a little bit with years of media, I presume. <laughs> but um, she has, she has, she has something to say. You know what I mean? She has something to say for herself, and she's not shy about it. And I really, yeah, I really enjoy that side of it as well. She's clearly confident about her rugby ability, and I've been impressed with how every time she plays, you can see the signs of learning and the hunger that her teammates talk about to improve. Um, you know, even defensively, that side of her game, which wasn't tested massively against the Welsh, obviously. Also, it's really important that she has been playing rugby since the start, really. That's her sport, you know. She hasn't crossed over into rugby from something else. Not that that can't be a success, but she, you can see the rugby IQ. Same with Doherty Wall. She's come up through through the ranks in, in Feathered and, and Parsons in Balanced Low. It's class for their clubs as well. And and speaking to someone in Balanced Low, uh, Anne Conlon, for, for a piece last week, she was saying they had 120 girls signed up before COVID hit to play rugby. And, and absolutely, that's based on on Baven Parsons excelling. So, yeah, they're, they're role models. They're brilliant rugby players. And that's the most important part of it. I totally agree with you. Or if you can harness that and encourage that, and that's part of it. It's a, you know, sport is, is entertainment. And, and we want to have characters and people who support it want to have their heroes and and absolutely they can be role models like that but as importantly they're just brilliant rugby players like they're 19 and 20 but that's why i'm really interested this weekend see how they go against that top tier side because that's the next uh next step for them well they're being brilliant rugby players is is kind of uh as murray says a crucial part of it bernard because they're so good and because they've been playing since childhood and you can actually see that kind of nous that they have 
sort of similar with the uh, Emily Scarred, I think in England like there's a kind of there's such a natural uh, element to their game uh, like that's so conspicuous so it's too good an opportunity surely to not capitalize upon how good they are and, and the types of personalities they are and, and look to create more and more of these types of young women who come up from playing from the ages of six seven ten and so on uh because that's ultimately how you'll build a sport uh with personalities and with people who are good at it yeah it's it's exciting i mean I, i've been working on a lot of the uh, women's games over the last couple of years and you know i suppose going away from the games you're going you know where's the you know where's the end point there was it was they were kind of blocked in between obviously the team of you know that 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 won the Six Nations and, and beat the All Blacks and and they've been in transition, transition. But I, I genuinely felt um, Saturday um, and you know doing some work on it for against the head uh, that this is a team with the potential as a team, but also with the individuals that you just want to to know more about and and kind of hear about their 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 journey. And like I was looking up some stuff yesterday about Hannah Tyrrell and you know. Like she looks so good on on Saturday, and we've been kind of crying out for a ten, and 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 our story and our experience in other sports and all that stuff, like um yeah, and and some of the like the reason we love Zebo is because he's authentic and he's, you know, he's 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 different and he he's himself, um and and I, and I'd like to hope that these, uh these players these women um keep that sense of their journey and and their personality and. Uh, if they do, uh, I think people will follow them. One hundred percent, they will, because you know their their qual their their performances are excellent, um, and they're going to get better. Plus, obviously, they they seem to be very likable, very normal, um, and 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 good characters. So you know, what more do you want? And female sports people usually do actually keep that element of personality in the public eye if you like they, like I know you were saying Murray after years of dealing with the likes of yourself uh, it's bound to drive yeah, Vivian <laughs> no I know I know but uh, because ultimately they can't actually afford to give the boring uh, passive answers just to get the interview out of the way because they're trying to build something for themselves and for girls growing up beneath them you know like they want as much coverage as they can get understandably uh, whereas for the Dublin footballers for a Premier League soccer player for even some of the Ireland uh, men's rugby team, they know they're going to be front and centre of, of the papers, of the 42, whatever, radio. They actually often don't want that. Uh, so women, women's rugby players, female athletes, generally speaking, always strike me as being a bit more authentic as a general rule because they almost have to be in order to give those, give themselves that platform, you know. So, And as Bernard says, this, this team seems to be chock-a-block full of those types of characters is not just uh Bavian and Dorothy we were just using them as examples given they're 19 and 20 but like you think of Eber Considine and uh, Hannah Tyrrell as Bernard was talking about you could actually go through 1 to 23 they all seem like really uh interesting characters yeah absolutely and that's that's part of it there's a, a series on the 42 at the moment about trailblazers and women's rugby it's really interesting kind of seeing this very recent history in, in some cases and and that's still part of it that unfortunately is the reality as we said, it's amateur status. You would hope that Parsons and Wall and, and the other younger members of the Ireland squad are going to live through a transition into a professionalism in, in women's rugby in Ireland. With the WXV competition coming in 2023, more demands than ever, hopefully more interest than ever. And that seems to, certainly in the last couple of weeks with the standalone nature of Six Nations, that seems to be happening. So absolutely, they could be trailblazers in that sense as well. 
let's look ahead to that France game there. You've touched upon it a couple of times. I, I, I'm not sure what else there is to ask apart from do you think they can do it? Because we've only seen them both, well, uh, certainly I've only seen them both play Wales. Um, as you say, there were similar types of victories and Wales didn't put up a great deal of a challenge. So how do you think they stack up against each other, Murray? And who are you leaning towards this weekend? Mm, it's it's a tough one to call because France, obviously, for a longer period, much longer period, have been that top-tier team. And that's probably why I would lean towards them. But based on last weekend, I do expect Ireland to to be in the contest. And I can't say I felt that coming into the championship and looking at the fixture list. Um, I saw Neil O'Reardon tweeted out that the French um, kind of union are already given accreditation for their final against England, which is interesting. Um, maybe that's just a logistics thing. But that would have been the absolute expectation coming into the championship, whereas now it feels more uncertain. And, and even making it that is is a positive, as we spoke about before the championship. So listen, I probably do expect France to win, if I'm being 100% honest, based on kind of historical uh, success. But fingers crossed it'll be a, a close, tight one. In recent history, Bernard, the Scots have held France to a draw Italy beat them a couple of years ago and finished ahead of them in the championship is is that cause for optimism for Ireland combined with that performance against Wales yeah absolutely I think Ireland need to be uh optimistic it's, it's a great chance and, and um but I do think probably um I'd say that that Scotland uh, uh draw and maybe the uh, Italy defeat came from overconfidence on the French part or part of it was down to that I think there our cards are marked um you know it, it's when they they analyze us in terms of Wales, they're going to know that it's a team that they've been beaten um, over the last couple of years. So that's that's going to be a challenge to not be a complete underdog. Um, but yeah, uh, if they can build on Wales, which you would you would like to think they will get better from the Wales game because they hadn't played. Um, yeah, it, it, like look, at, if we can be competitive against them, that's a, that's a, a good start. You know, obviously um, we want to win, but. Just bridging that gap. England and France seem to have pulled away. Um, and I suppose it's for us to leave the others behind. Super. What I love about that team is that we're talking about them bridging the gap and being competitive and they're talking about winning. So uh, in Bayvin Parsons' words, bring it on. Looking forward to it. Lads, pleasure as always. Murray, thank you. Cheers, Gav. Bernard, thanks a million for all of your expertise on recruitment. It was superb. Thanks, Gav. And thank you to everybody at home as well, all of the 42 members for... All of your questions, we got around to as many of them as we could. Loads of questions on Twitter as well. Thank you to everybody who sent those and to the couple of lads on email. Uh, back on Monday for Rugby Weekly Extra, Murray and Owen looking back in the week. I think week it's actually going to be me and, me and you, Gav. I forgot to say it to you, but I think it's the, the pair of us teaming up. Super. Back on Monday, Murray and myself. Looking forward to it. And we'll be back on Thursday in the regular slot as well. This podcast is sponsored by... Guinness, who are also proud sponsors of the Women's Six Nations, remember to drink responsibly. Enjoy the rugby over the weekend. Until next week, mind yourselves, take it easy. Bigger has a look cross field, but delays it. You don't get that opportunity, and Rory Best is away, and Best passes it outside, and he slipped, and Zebo. oh, what a piece of skill from Simon Zebo! I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. Leinster could have me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. <laughs> Robbie Robbie Weekly. Then the first pass. Oh, 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 Magic!